Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, and welcome to Crosswinds Church. And I want to thank our, our praise team members uh, for stepping up this week. I, I don't know if it was announced earlier because I was running around, but our worship leader, Emil's brother, um, tragically died yesterday, unexpectedly. And uh, we're giving him and his family time to heal. He may be traveling to South Africa this week, and, you know, at the last minute, Annika and Abdu uh, and Jean, who's never played with the team, <laughs> but she's a wonderful musician, had, had to put together worship for us today. And I want to just let's thank them for leading us in worship, and they did a great job. Um, and we've got a young youth back there um, running sound for the first time on his own, and he's doing a great job. It's here for James. And our, our love and our sympathy go out to the Quartz family and Emil, our brother, and our worship leader for the loss of his brother yesterday. And also, another thing that happened yesterday is Mike Hoffman, our bass player, his mom fell and broke her hip. And so we didn't have him this morning, and he's caring for her. She's having surgery um, probably right now as, as we're talking. And So let's, let's take a moment and, and pray for these families um, right now. Father, I, I just... I thank you that you are good and that you are faithful and that you are trustworthy and that we can praise you in the midst of trial, in the midst of heartache, that we can have a confidence that you solidly love us and that you are always there for us. And Father, right now I ask you to lift up my brother Emil and, and his family, his mom Eileen and, and all his family throughout wherever they live, Lord, and his family here in, in, in the Chicago area. Father, that you would bring them your comfort and you would bring them your strength and that you would bring peace to their heart knowing that they will see Ruan again. And uh, Father, I, I pray for uh, Mike and his mom, Jenny, Lord, that, that Father, that you would give the doctors wisdom and, and that, that you would help them to treat her and make her well and that a recovery would go well and that she would be able to uh, do the things that, that bring her joy and to glorify you. We know that she loves you and, and um, that she believes in you. And so, Father, we ask for your protection upon her. Also pray for Jennifer and her mom, Lord, who's also very sick right now with cancer and, and, and Father, in hospice. And I just pray for strength for Jennifer and her family. And, Father, that your peace would be upon her mom and that that, Father, that you would come to her and speak to her and reveal yourself in a powerful way that she might have peace and strength as she faces this time in her life. I love you, Lord, and we love you, and we just praise you right now and trust, put our trust in you. Amen. Well, I'm reminded this morning of Job, who praised God in the midst of great tragedy. He fell on the floor and he worshiped God when everything he held dear was taken away. And, and he, he, he arose and tore his robe and sh shaved his head and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or, or charge God with wrong. So today, if we've not met, my, my name is, is Ken, and I'm the pastor of Crosswinds Church, and whether you're watching online or whether you're here in person, I hope you get something solid today, something that you can count on, even in 
tough times, something that you can trust and that will encourage you in those tough moments of your life. Uh, uh, this is going to kind of be weird right now, but I want to watch a quick clip. Cleone, if you could, uh, and James, turn on the computer and, and oh no. We have a security alert. Uh, and um, Cleone, <laughs> we're going to forget the clip. I'm going to explain the clip because most of you have already seen this clip at some point. There's a, a, a a special called The Great Pumpkin but that Charlie Brown has. And, and you see Charlie and all his friends going uh, around. And uh, uh, Cleone, you may have to shut down the, the computer and, and do that. But they're, they're going around trick-or-treating. And they're all in their costumes. Charlie's got a bunch of holes in his ghost costume because he didn't, doesn't get things quite right. And the first, after they're looking in their bags, the kids are like, I got a taffy apple. I got juji fruit. I got a candy bar. I got a popcorn ball. And Charlie Brown goes, I got a rock. And, and they go the next door and the same thing happens. They go the next door and the same. And all Charlie Brown is getting is rocks. And, and sometimes in life, it feels like we just got a rock, Right? But I want to reframe that today because that's, that's what God does is he, he reframes things. And I don't want you to feel sorry for old Charlie Brown. Um, he got something useful, didn't he? You know, taffy apples will rot your teeth. And candy bars will just make you fat or diabetic. Sugar ultimately grows cancer. But Charlie got something solid, something useful, something that will last forever. You can use a rock as a paperweight. You can use a rock as a base to build your home. You can use a rock to defend yourself. A rock is something that will outlast you, outlast Charlie. A rock is reliable. It'll always be a rock. It, It won't rot and become waste like candy will. Charlie got a rock. The Bible, God's word, is like a rock. And like Charlie, we often don't appreciate it in our modern culture. But it, friends, will stand forever in good times and in bad times. The scriptures tell us that. It says this, the the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever, Isaiah 48. See, we live in a world full of junk food culturally, philosophically, and spiritually that will rot your soul honestly. The world offers a lot of tricks and treats, but what you need to have stability in your life is a rock, the Bible, God's word, which is all about Jesus. Every book and every letter, and he does not change. He is our rock. 2 Samuel 2 47 says, the Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalted be God, the rock, my savior. Now, Charlie didn't appreciate what he got. He wanted the junk food. Some of us do too. But because I love you, I, I, I want you to appreciate the rock God has given each one of you. The Bible, friends, is something useful. It is permanent. It is life-giving. And you know what? You don't have to read it. Friends, you get to read it. You get to read it. And today, if you have a Bible with you, I want you to, um, or a Bible app, I want you to open to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And today, if you don't have a Bible, I want you to raise your hand high, and one of our deacons will come, and they'll give you your own Bible that you can keep 
Because I want you to have a firm foundation in which to build your life on. And so uh, Nigel is running around and they're going to give you a rock. Do you know what a privilege it is today that you can open your Bible and read it? Many have suffered so you could open that Bible today and read it. The Apostle Paul who wrote 2 Timothy um, 3, which we're going to read a section of in a little bit, was awaiting execution in a Roman prison as he wrote the very words we're going to study today. And these words are some of the last words Paul wrote. And someone's last words are very important. And today, thank you. You gave me a rock. Thank you, Barry. <laughs> Let's give Barry a big hand. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you, Barry. That's great. Uh, you know, the very words we're going to study, Paul was suffering in prison when he wrote them. These are some of Paul's last words, and, and someone's last words are extremely important, and today you have the privilege of reading them. You know, Emil had the privilege of speaking to his brother this past week, I believe on Thursday, and, and his last words, their last discussion about, was about his brother's renewed faith in Jesus, and that he was building his life now on Jesus after maybe a long time of not doing him. Those words are so important. They provide a great hope that we will see Ruan, his brother, again soon because he put his trust in an unchanging rock, something solid that will give him eternal life. He can be assured of that, and his family now can be assured of that. Today, we have the privilege of reading Paul's last words, and he shares a solid rock of truth with us. So, you know, the beautiful thing is we don't have to read it, but we get to read the Word of God any time we want. And you know what? We can today, we can listen to it uh, right in our Bible apps for free through like Bible CC or Blue Letter Bible on our way to work or on our way to school or as we're working out. And, and we can listen to great preachers anytime we want on YouTube. We can even ask chatbots today uh, or, you know, like... Uh, uh, chat GBT or Claude or something like that or Bard uh, uh, to read the Bible to us. It'll read the Bible to you if you ask it. And, and it'll even give you historical context if, if you ask it. But friends, it's not always been that way that the word of God was so accessible. Most of our Bible's authors suffered like Paul greatly that you could have something solid that teaches you the truth about the nature of God. Do you know that the Bible is a special book? It's the largest selling book of all time. And it's actually not just one book. It's a collection of 66 books penned by 40 different authors from various walks of life, like shepherds and kings and fishermen and scholars. And they were spread across three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And it was written down over a span of 1,500 years in, in, in these three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek and it uses different um, forms of genre from poetry to prophecy to historical letters and, and accounts. Yet despite all of its diversity in its creation, uh, you know, different offers, different times, different occupations, different countries, different cultures, it has a, a unified theme that works perfectly together about God's love for us and his plan to redeem us through Jesus Christ. 
It's all about Jesus. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, said that all roads in England eventually lead to London. And friends, it's the same truth about the Bible, that all texts, if you read them correctly, will lead you to the gospel of our rock, Jesus Christ. It's an amazing book. There are over 300 prophecies about him in the scriptures. And a mathematical professor, Peter Stoner, calculated the mathematical odds of, of one man just fulfilling 48 of those prophecies was one to the 157th power. A number so large, it's like uh, 157th power, is, is, is like all the electrons in the known universe. That's a chance of, of, of one man fulfilling 48, and he filled, fulfilled over 300. You have a book a prophecy that's solid rock accurate. And friends, you get to read it. You get to read it. The Bible is more than just a collection of religious writings. We believe that every word in it is inspired by God himself. Now, everyday people like us have not always had the privilege to read it. This book has the power to transform your life and and to free you from your sins and to give you everlasting life. But it's not always been available for everyone to read. In some areas of the world today, it's still not available for everyone to read. People used to believe that only the rich and the elite and the educated could read this book. The Bible was originally written down in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and, and then it was quickly translated into Latin in a version known as the Vulgate. And for much of history, only the elite, educated, rich could read God's word. And that allowed religious leaders to hold power over the laity, and people had to rely on the clergy to interpret the scriptures for them. Friends, you get to read the very words of God. And I don't want you to trust my words. Instead, I want you to test them with what this book has to say. It doesn't matter as much what I have to say as what this book has to say. In the past, there there was great resistance to the idea of individuals reading the Bible for themselves. Political leaders and religious leaders feared losing their power and control of the people if everyone could read it. John Wycliffe made significant sacrifices to translate the Bible into a, a, a language that the common people could understand And and the corrupt church of his time declared him a heretic and banned his writings. And the church even desecrated his body after death, burning it to ash and throwing it into the river swift. But friends, you get to read it. The original texts were written on parchments and and scrolls made from papyrus or animal skins. And, And these things were valuable and rare. And so not everyone could afford one to read. Hand copying a single Bible could take up to to 10 months and even longer if it needed language translation. And you can just click a button and change it to whatever language you want today. You get to read it. Johannes Gutenberg, a Christian, invented the printing press with the objective of making the Bible more accessible to everyday people. And Gutenberg died penniless and bankrupt so that we today could have a Bible that's in your hand. Uh, Hudrick Zwingli translated the Bible into German and Swiss dialects for the everyday man there. And he was so reviled for this act that upon his death, 
in battle, his body was cut into five pieces and burned because it was considered heretical. William Tyndale was the first to translate the full Bible into English. And he did this while fleeing persecution from the church and it was eventually executed by strangulation and burned at the stake. Friends, the pilgrims left their homelands in search of religious freedom and the ability to read the Bible for themselves. And through the work of the Puritans and other um, many educational systems and universities were established with the aim of educating people to read God's word. Sad that many of those institutions today now mock God's word. Friends, the fact that you have a Bible in your hand is nothing short of a miracle. If you have one today, you are a person of great privilege. Because of that privilege, I hope you will start reading it for yourself, because you can. Actually, I would like you all to stand with me right now, and I want to read together a scripture from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and, and, and 17. Let's, you may have it in your Bible, or you could read it on the screen together. Let, let's read this together. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. You may be seated. This is the word of our Lord God. And you got to read it. The scripture we just read is very important. It's it's very relevant today if we see it as a rock. Something true. We live in an age of of misinformation and fake news. We have created artificial intelligence that knows how to flatter us and how to give us instant information, but it does not really know what is true. And has often been biased by its postmodern creators. And it it also still hallucinates and it it lies when it comes to what are true facts. And you have to challenge it to, to bring out the truth. And if you challenge it based on truth, it's like a calculator. It'll find the truth. So we don't destroy ourselves as a society as it gets smarter than us. Friends, we, as his people, need to know what is true. So we can bring the challenge. You know, there was a time in my life that I almost destroyed myself because I did not know what was true. I simply did whatever I felt was right. And I created a lot of damage to my own life and to my wife's life and to my children's life because I followed my own rules. I hurt people that I loved. One day I was given the rock of God's word and I started reading it and building my life upon it. My life changed. I finally had the manual for how my life was meant to operate from the one who created life. Finally, I had something true, which with where my errors in life could start to be corrected. A false teacher I was having a discussion with recently called me a biblicist. And he did that as a derogatory term because he feels he is so much more wise and educated than I am. He's smart. A biblicist is someone who believes that the Bible is true. 
The opposite, though, would be believing your opinion is true. I have learned that opinions are kind of like buttholes. Everyone has one, but some of them stink. Friends, do you want to trust someone's opinion or some intelligent machine's opinion, or do you want to know what is true? And, and, and I want you to say, what we attempt to do here at Crosswinds is teach the Bible, not my opinions. I want you to learn to say, the Bible says, not my pastor says. This is what our doctrinal statement says here at Crosswinds. We believe that the Bible is a collection of 66 books that is absolute truth and God's final authority. We believe both the Old Testament and the New Testament are inerrant, verbally inspired, and infallible word of God. See, we affirm what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 7. You might say, don't all churches believe that the Bible is true? No. No. In this text, Paul is dealing with false teachers in the church. He's doing that from 2 Timothy 2.14 to um, 2 Timothy 3.15. And because he wants Timothy, the leader that's coming after him, after he's martyred, to keep the integrity of the church by holding on to the truth. And he makes clear a statement about the inerrancy of God's word to keep the church from corruption. Friends, there are no inerrant teachers, including myself. We all make mistakes in our interpretations because we are sinners and we have biases. But Paul is saying that the scriptures themselves are trustworthy. In science, there's something very important to continuing to have discovery, and it's called a control. It's something that remains unchanged or unaffected by variables that are being tested. Controls help us know what is true because they stay constant. And without a control, you have no real measure of what is true. Most would say control is absolutely essential for us to understand scientific principles. But when it comes to theology, most people operate with themselves or their opinion as their control. See, we live today in a world that believes in relative truth. What is true for me is true for me, and what is true for you is true for you. And we believe that in all theological matters. Friends, would that work in science? No. No. Uh, if I believe in gravity, I believe gravity was true for me and you did not believe it was true for you, then go ahead, just start floating around the room. Right? Just go for it. See, there's something that's a control, friends. There, there must be objective reality, some control or some constants that, constant that tells us what is up and what is down. A disciple of Christ believes there is objective truth. For that's what the Bible teaches. Objective truths are facts or realities that exist independently of individual thought, feelings, or perceptions. These truths are considered universal, unchanging, accessible to anyone, regardless of personal belief or perspective. That's, that's what the Bible is claiming, that it's true. Most in our world either believe or act like they believe in what is called subjective truth. The truth is rooted in personal feelings, 
experience and perceptions or popular culture's interpretations. And those truths are often individual or culturally specific and may not be universally accepted or verifiable. What do you believe? Is the Bible a rock written by the one who created reality itself? Or, or a book with some spiritual truths you believe sometimes when it's convenient for you to do so? Is the Bible just a book of religious opinions? Or friends, is it a book of truth? A control that tells us what is an error and, or what is an error and what is true. The word inerrant means without error, mistake, or fault. The early church fathers, like the Apostle Paul, believed the word was written without error. And, and other church fathers, like Origen and Justin, Martyr and Polycarp and Augustine, also believed this. But over time, intellectuals in the church started trusting more in their opinions and their traditions than the words of God. So in 1978, a group of 300 evangelicals came together in Chicago to define what inerrancy means. It's called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And, and it's long, and I'm going to give you some brief things about it today. But first I want you to know it applies inerrancy to the original manuscripts of the text, something called the autographs, not the various translations we, we, we have. Translations, like teachers, may contain errors. So the original writings are the control when it comes to theological texts. Well, how accurate, friends, are, are the original writings? They are the most accurate ancient texts we have in all of history. They are. The New Testament has over 5,000 supporting Greek manuscripts existing today with over 20,000 manuscripts in other languages. And some of those manuscripts um, date within 100 years of the events that happened. And there's less than a 2% textual variation in those 5,000 New Testament manuscript copies. That's how accurate they were copied over time. Now, let's compare that. Let's compare that to Plato's writing. The earliest copy we have is 1,200 years after Plato lived. There are only seven copies, and we have no idea of their accuracy between copies. For Caesar's writings, we have 10 copies. The earliest is 1,000 years after he walked on the earth. And we also don't have a, 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 a way to calculate their accuracy between copies. Yet, I have never heard a secularist scholar of history doubt the accuracy of Plato or Caesar's writing. Yet many of them, and Google Bard, if, if you just ask it a generic question, will say that the New Testament is unreliable and we can't say it's completely accurate, but then test it and say, well, compare that to other ancient literature. Compare that to Plato's writings. Compare that to other things. Is it accurate? Oh, yeah, it's accurate. Test the facts. It's, it, it, there's nothing like this rock in ancient literature. Nothing. Everything we know about history would go away, or a lot of what we would know about history could go away if we dismissed what we've learned from the Bible. 
There's nothing like the rock you've been given in the original autograph. The Chicago Statement on Inerrancy emphasizes the Bible is the ultimate authority in matters of faith and practice, and it stands alone above all human wisdom and tradition. So as Proverbs 9, 10 states, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, not knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the, the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This statement also includes principles for biblical interpretation. It says the proper interpretation of the Bible requires recognizing its literary forms, its historical context, and and the intent of the authors under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Some of the Bible's literary forms are not meant to be taken literally. When Jesus says, I am the door, that doesn't mean he's a piece of wood. Okay, when he says, I am the bread of life, he's not a loaf of wonder bread. Okay, it seems obvious, but... When people complain you know, that we're literalists. We don't mean that when we say the word is inerrant. Think of Luke 15, a parable about um, the prodigal son. It's not meant to be a true story in terms of this happened. It's meant to be a parable, a story that teaches us about the truths of who God our Father is. The Chicago Statement affirms the historical accuracy of the Bible. Interesting, modern archaeology has not disproved the Bible. Often quite the opposite. Archaeology is an ongoing science, and some things maybe have not been corroborated yet by scholars, but nothing has been proven absolutely false after 2,000 years of study, which is really pretty amazing. There's some things that they can test, but it's pretty amazing to think 2,000 years later, the Bible stands up. The, the, the statement of the Chicago inerrancy tries to clarify some common misconception about inerrancy, what it is and what it's not, because many people and skeptics have misconceptions. One misconception is inerrancy means literalism, that every word should be taken literally. And as I said, there are different literal forms, in literary forms in the Bible, and so that you can't do always. Another misconception is inerrancy denies scientific facts. The statement, the Chicago Statement, says the Bible and science are not inherently at odds. Sometimes the Bible contains accommodative language reflecting the limited scientific understanding of the culture at the time. Another misconception is an inerrancy is only concerned with factual accuracy, not spiritual truth. But friends, understanding inerrancy is crucial for correct understanding of God, who he is, salvation, and how to live out the Christian life. Another misconception is that inerrancy makes the Bible an idol, elevating it above God. But affirming inerrancy is a way to honor God as the author of Scripture, not the opinion of men, which would be an idol, as the source of revelation. The last misconception is that inerrancy is not important. But it is crucial, friends, for us having a correct understanding of God, salvation, and our Christian life. For example, if we just salad bar and pick and choose what to believe, then can we really say what is true other than our own opinion? I mean, doesn't it just, we start picking and choosing, aren't we just using our opinions again? In this text, Paul is dealing with false teachers in the church who undermine scriptural authority. And he wants Timothy to keep the integrity of the church by holding the truth after he is gone. And Paul makes this clear statement about the inerrancy of God's word to combat 
all false teaching. Paul says in verse 16 that all scripture is breathed out by God. That means it, it, through man, it is the very words of God. And, and so what does he mean by scripture here? Well, Paul was a Jew, a Pharisee who studied under the rabbi Gamaliel, which is like the Harvard of theological schools of his day. And he considered the scripture to be what we call the Old Testament, the, the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and the Nevelim, which is the prophets, and the Ketavim, which is the writings like Psalms, Proverbs, and Daniel. The 39 books of the Old Testament were the scriptures to Paul. And the apostles and Jesus preached from these books as biblicists. People who believed scripture was God-breathed. In Paul's statement and others' statements he made, he, he, he's referring to the scriptures and, 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 and the gospels, the, the words of Jesus, and, and even his own writings and the writings of the other apostles at the time as scripture. And we know that because Paul commanded the public reading of his letters to the early church, just as it would have been done with the Holy Hebrew Scriptures, because that's what he would have been trained to do as a Pharisee. In Colossians 4, 16, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 27, a biblicist like Paul shares that we should read his writings to the church and believe them as if they are God-breathed. Now, Friends, there were councils in the church before the Chicago Statement that determined what all Scripture meant. There were three different church councils between AD 394 and uh, uh, AD uh, 382 that determined the, the canon we accept of this New Testament uh, books. These were the Synod of Hippo, the Council of Carthage, and the Council of Rome. These councils were not just a bunch of men arbitrarily choosing which books to keep and which books to throw out as some conspiracy theorists or skeptics try to propose. These were councils that confirmed the books that the church was already using and reading and considering Scripture, like Paul's letters and the Gospels. Now, these councils also discussed other books to add to the Old Testament called the Deuterocanaticals or the Apocrypha. But these are considered later writings, later than the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. And the Jews never considered these as scripture. They were only confirmed as canon by the Catholic Church in the Council of Trent and, you know, 1,500 years later in 1546. And they were confirmed to support some of the Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox's traditions. But the Protestants and the apostles did not consider these authoritative scriptures. When they preached, they preached from the Old Testament because that's what they had. They were writing the new one. And when they preached, 30 times or 30 different books of the 39 are quoted from the Hebrew Old Testament. You know how many times the Deuterocanonical or the Apocrypha is quoted? None. They saw as Scripture the, what the Jews saw as Scripture as far as the Old Testament. Um, 
Protestants, we typically believe in what is called sola scriptura, that scripture alone is our authority. The authority in Catholicism derives from scripture, tradition, and the magisterium, or the church leadership. And to me, that's a lot more variables, which can be easily corrupted by culture, circumstances, and politics. You know, what, what's happening in church governance, and that's why doctrine keeps changing in the Catholic Church. Because different cultures, different times do things. We believe in a rock, something unchanging. The Protestant Church does not recognize the, the six apocryphal books later canalized to support traditions as Scripture. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy about how from childhood Timothy had been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The sacred writings Paul refers to here were the Hebrew scriptures, the early writings taught to him by his Jewish mother and his Jewish grandmother. His father was Greek. And Paul and Jesus fought against tradition and sentimentality and opinions that corrupted the gospel. And they focused, and Paul tried to focus Timothy on the truth of God's word through the scriptures. Why is this important? Because false teaching comes from either adding to or subtracting from God's word. Revelation, the final book of scripture, warns us about this. It says in chapter 22, verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to him, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. And friends, this is not just a New Testament idea, but the Old Testament states this as well. In Deuteronomy 4.2, it states, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Friends, you have a rock here. And I want you all to be wise for salvation and trust its truth, even when they're hard. Honestly, if you read it, you will find in it apparent contradictions and things that seem counter to the culture you live in. The Bible is always countercultural in any culture because human culture has errors. And if you start studying the Bible, you will be able to reconcile those apparent contradictions. I have been studying diligently the Bible for over 30 years, and I have been challenged by it at times, many times, but upon further study, all those apparent contradictions were confirmed in its truth. I have never found an apparent contradiction that could not be reconciled by understanding the culture and the context and the people that God was addressing. There is always a timeless truth that can be supported through every scripture that it's relevant to us today. Friends, this is your rock. And we should tremble reading it. We should feel so privileged to be able to read it because we have something so great. The creator of the universe actually speaking to us. 
His word says that in Isaiah 6 too. But this is the one who, to whom I look. He who is humble and is contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Friends, you will be wise for salvation if you trust his word. But you can be led astray to hell by false teachers who add and subtract from it. The subtle changes in churches and and leaders may seem insignificant to you. And the culture may seem more relevant to you. But I want you to consider this analogy. If there are six men rowing a boat and they want to hit an island in 100 miles, if there's one guy rowing at the back trying to row against everybody, you kind of realize that and, and you throw him off or you get him on board and get him online so he doesn't pull you off course, right? But the dangerous rower, the dangerous rower would be the one who just adds a few extra strokes every once in a while or subtracts a few strokes so that you're not all even. And over a 100-mile journey, that guy can take you miles off course and you won't reach your island destination of paradise. Scriptural inerrancy is something that keeps his church in unity and our lives on course. Friends, the danger of corruption is not just in the past. These issues are not settled. We deal with them every day. I don't send people to Christian bookstores because of marketing. There's a lot of garbage in them that is false from false teachers. There are about four churches in this area that, out of 35 that I would even recommend because I know that they teach the truth that God's word is true. I don't care who the teacher is. I know what they believe about the word of God. I want to give you a chart of denominations because someday you may move somewhere that believe in inerrancy and, and also those who do not. So here's a chart of denominations generally believing the word of God is the word of God that's perfect and true, inerrancy. Now here's another list. Denominations that do not. Now some of these denominations that don't affirm inerrancy may still claim to believe the Bible is authoritative. But friends, that's not the same. Don't be fooled. By picking and choosing which parts of the scripture to believe... They become the authorities, not the word of God. Right? It's, they undermine biblical authority by elevating their human opinions over God's word. See, I'm not the ultimate authority of this church. God's word is the rock of our authority. Jesus, through his word, is the leader of our church. The Bible itself, God's word, will make you wise for salvation. Churches today that deny inerrancy are attempting to accommodate the culture or increase their budget or make their leaders popular and they're corrupting the gospel. The gospel, the very gospel that saves us. As Jesus said in John 8, 31 through 32, to the people who believed him, his disciples, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple and you will know the truth and that truth, friends, will set you free. Friends, you have a rock here. Paul says the scripture is useful. It's profitable for teaching you, 
for correcting your errors, for training you in righteousness so that you may be complete without sin through its sanctifying effect and equipped for every good work of sharing that gospel with others and reforming this world. Paul states in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You don't need to understand, friends, all of God's word to be saved. You just need to believe in what it says, in its truths, by faith. Believe that God became a man in Christ Jesus, that he lived among us sinlessly, and that he died a horrible death to remove your sin on the cross. And then three days later, after death, that same Jesus walked out of the grave to prove your sins are forgiven and that you have been given eternal life. That gospel message is throughout the scriptures and so that we believe that that message is true by faith in what he has done for you. But you must hear the words and believe in their accuracy and the truth of their message of the good news that comes to us through the scripture. That God redeems us by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. Not by our traditions, not by our opinions, not by our sentimentality, not by our heritage. You must believe that it is by grace through faith alone that we are saved. You must believe Jesus alone is the rock of your salvation, the control. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. Not through the church, but through him. Friends, you have a rock here today. It's a, it's a privilege. And it can give you assurance for eternal life. Why is all this important? Because someday, like ruin, each one of us is going to die. And if we trust in fables and the opinions of men, it's going to stink. We're going to be in hell forever. But if we trust in the word of God, we can know that we can have salvation. The same list of churches that, that don't believe the word of God is inerrant is the same list of the churches, for the most part, that give you no assurance of your salvation. And I want you to know that if you believe in Jesus Christ today as your Lord and Savior, you can be assured that you will enter his kingdom if you will maintain hold of that belief. You can know for sure. My Catholic grandmother once said to me before she died, I hope I get to heaven. I said, Grandma, you've loved Jesus your whole life. Let's pray. Trust in the fact that you'll go to heaven. We can know. We can stand on the rock of our salvation, Jesus. If you don't have that kind of rock-solid faith of what happens to you when you die today, turn from your sins. Believe on Jesus Christ. Make him your Lord and Savior and be cleansed of your sin and be forgiven and given everlasting life. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for the rock, the rock of your word that you have not left us alone in this world, that we have something firm to believe in, even when the, the storms of life um, toss us about, Lord. We have a rock, something firm that protects us. God is for us and not against us. And neither height nor depth nor angel nor demon nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. And if, if we, we believe that, Lord, by faith, you will carry us into your kingdom. We believe in your goodness and we believe in your love. Father, if there's anybody here today that has doubts, Lord, let them turn from their doubts and believe upon your word. 
and be saved. Father, let that give them their heart peace, no matter what they're going through. Father, help them to turn and trust you. Help them to be like Peter. At your word, I will live. I will do according to your word. I will follow you. Father, let them make that decision today and find peace in their hearts. And I pray that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.